I love um, that song. Uh, so it's one of my favorites because it, in my mind, it, it just so eloquently captures the message that keeps compelling us back here week after week, right? I mean, it just, it captures for us the story that, that brings God's people in a state of worship, right? And, and it's one of those things that I want to make sure that we don't just gloss over. And so if this is your first time in church, or, or maybe it's been a long time since you've been in church, Honestly, really, if you're here every week, I think it, it makes sense for us to stop and recognize this, this hope that brings us back, that, that compels us towards worship, right? The reality is that the truth of that song is that all of us stand condemned, right? All of us are guilty, right? Now, we sometimes wrestle with that idea because we live in a society, we live in a, cult, in a culture that teaches us that we are innocent until proven guilty. And so sometimes we don't always... Uh, understand the level of guilt that we actually carry. But what the scriptures teach is that all of us are broken. All of us are guilty and stand condemned. And the good news is, is that this debt that is unavoidable, right, this price that has to be paid, it has been paid not in part, not just in portion, but has been paid in full by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so now this curse of sin has no hold on us. Right, all those moments that we go through life where we feel our imperfections, right, those mistakes that we make, those, those impulses, those indulgences, or the times that we are surrounded by the curse of sin in this world. We hear about one more murder, one more tragedy, one more disease. None of that has its hold on us anymore. All of us have been set free by the blood of Jesus. That's why we're here, to sing and to celebrate that freedom. Amen? It's the gospel. And as a church at University Baptist, we've identified that one of our key convictions is to be gospel-centered, which means everything we do, whether it's going overseas or doing a VBS or coming in here on a Sunday morning, is to exalt that message of hope. We are gospel-centered. And I want to take some time this morning and talk about these convictions, or at least one specific conviction this morning, um, that that honestly is going to be a little bit of a mini-sermon before we get to the actual message. And so stick, stick with me for a little bit, but I feel like we need to, to address this, and I think it'll complement each other when, when it's all said and done. But when we talk about these ki- convictions, right, we, we often talk about the key convictions that we have here as a church. When we use that word, that word by definition means to have a fixed or firm belief, okay? And so when we have a fixed or firm belief in something, those convictions influence our behavior, right? I mean, for example, I, I have a strong conviction that reading is important, and so as a result, I read, right? I, I, I actually practice that. I read articles. I teach my kids to read. could be simpler, right? I have a key conviction that manners are important, so I try to chew with my mouth closed, right? So, like, we have things that influence our behavior, and in in comparing comparing that as well, if we don't have those strong convictions, it doesn't influence our behavior. Like, I know this may come as a shock to some of you. I don't have a lot of strong convictions when it comes to fashion, right? I know many of you out there wish I had stronger convictions when it comes to fashion, but I just don't. And so it doesn't really influence my behavior, home decor. I mean, you name it. There are a lot of things I don't have convictions on. So, so convictions influence our behavior. And the one conviction I want us to talk about this morning uh, as we begin is that we as a church have a strong conviction that families are valued, right? And, and so when we talk about that, what we mean is that your family and all families should flourish. That's our hope. And, and we're not limiting that just to marriages or just to parenting. It doesn't matter what role you play in your family, what age that you carry. 
right? Whether you are a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a son, daughter, sister, brother, grandparent, doesn't matter. Your family and the role that you play should help flourish and exalt the truth of the gospel within that dynamic, and within that relationship, right? And, and you should help promote that flourishing in other families as well, right? That is a strong conviction. So if that's gonna influence our behavior, it needs to impact how we actually live, right? We have to actually cultivate the time that we're gonna need to spend with our spouse or our children, right? We're gonna have to actually invest in those relationships. When we see other families struggle, we need to help those marriages. We need to help those wayward children or whatever it is, right? It needs to influence our behavior. Now, I I say all this because of the events that have transpired this past week related to the border situation and the immigration issue and these children being separated from families. Now, I tend to be slow to talk about some of these issues in our church, but after enough comments from you all and hearing different things being said, I felt like it was important for us to briefly address it this morning. Now, before I discuss that particular issue, a couple disclaimers Uh, that hopefully set some expectations of what you could maybe see in me or expect in me as your pastor whenever these types of issues come up, not just this one, but any of these types of issues. First and foremost, I want you to understand I'm gonna be incredibly slow to bring any sort of political narrative into our church, all right? Because I've said it before, our main loyalty and allegiance is to the gospel, not to a political party, all right? And so you're not gonna see a lot of that brought in here. Right? And I, I have a belief that America could be gone tomorrow and it would not impact your primary identity as a child of God and as an ambassador of Christ. Okay? And so that's what we're going to commit ourselves to. Right? And my hope is that for all of us, and what we're going to exhibit here on a Sunday morning, is that people would see our identity as ambassadors of Christ more than they would be able to tell whether or not we're Republican or Democrat. All right? And, and so I'm going to be very slow to bring that sort of talk in here because this stage, this time is for the ex- exaltation of the gospel, not a political agenda. All right, number two, uh, another disclaimer. A lot of times people want to see pastors or other folks take a stand, so to speak, and make a statement or a comment on that. A lot of times we see that through social media. Um, I, I believe social media has a place. I think it can be effective in certain areas and situations. Uh, There will be times even that our church will utilize that as a tool to help make a statement as a church or provide information. But for me personally, if if you ever sit there wondering, well, is is Jeremiah going to say something or take a stand, don't hold your breath. Okay, because I look at that particular platform on issues like this to be highly unproductive. That's my take. It can be misconstrued and be led into an argumentative place when you divorce it from tone and body language and all these other important forms of communication. In this idea that if you're silent, you're part of the problem, I would push back on that a little bit. Because when I look, there's a lot of people talking, right? And I don't feel very compelled to join the cacophony of voices that create this white noise dialogue in our culture, okay? I don't see the problem that people are silent. I see the problem that people don't know how to listen. That's the issue I see. So don't look for me to, to make some sort of social media address, and don't mistake the absence of that to be apathy, right? It, it's just me choosing a different course. Third thing, um, we won't be afraid to talk about issues in this church, okay? We, we've talked in my time since I've been here, we've talked about racism, We've talked about the definition of marriage. We've talked about materialism. We've addressed some of the shootings that have come up. And we're going to talk about this today. So we're not going to shy away from issues. 
but we're going to look at it through the lens of the gospel. Okay, so those are some important disclaimers. So a couple of things, just real quick, about that situation. Clearly, as those who have a key conviction that families are valued, I don't see any possible way that any of us could support the separation of children from parents, period, the end. All right, that's just a fundamental belief. Separation of any family on on any capacity, divorce, whatever. Now, are there extreme situations where that's necessary? Yes, like abuse, neglect, where you need to separate for survival. Yeah, understandable, absolutely. But as a whole, we are always going to promote and strive for reconciliation for the family unit. Okay, that's just a fundamental stance. Now, Romans 13 was used by some political leaders this past week to justify some of these policies. And I would just tell you it was a very poor use of that text. That, that's my, my personal take on it. Because it, it limited the full teaching of Scripture, where later in Romans 13 it says, love your neighbor, as it does also in Matthew 22 and multiple other places. Or we could go to Hebrews 13 that talks about entertaining strangers and to care for those in prison as if you yourself were suffering. Right, or Mark 10 that talks about how we should receive children or the numerous examples through the scriptures of how to treat the foreigner and the one and the stranger that's in your midst. Right? So there's a lot of things that were left out. But hear me, yes, we should submit to laws. But Romans 13 does not give any government a blank check to create any law. Right? And so when those laws come into contradiction with the gospel, our responsibility is to hold tight to the gospel. Okay? And so that scripture, in my opinion, was misused. But let's, let's give some grace across the spectrum. This is an incredibly complicated issue that spans multiple administrations and multiple parties. I don't know what the laws need to be. I'm not that smart. I'm not that intelligent. I know they need to be fixed, and I know they need to be worked on how they, impl- how they implement them. Okay? So it's, it's complex, and it's difficult, and grace needs to be extended across all aisles, in my personal opinion. Right now, the other thing I would say is that we need to act more than we just need to make comments. Right, we need to do something to help. Now, this is a very difficult situation to help in. I will tell you that I have volunteered through Catholic charities before uh, down at the border for these sorts of immigration challenges, and I was very impressed by that organization. That would be a first place maybe to look. Uh, reach out to Catholic charities, see what they've got in place. Uh, the other thing I would tell you is call your congressman or woman, representative. Before you post anything on social media, reach out to them. That would be a good metric for you. That's what I would say right? So, so there's some things that we need to act, but the main reason that I finally felt compelled to, to address this this morning is because when we really talk about this key conviction of families being valued, a crisis like this is as frustrating and as volatile as it was should hopefully compel us to expand our scope and recognize that children are being separated from families for numerous reasons. Incarceration, abuse, neglect, Isolation, I mean, you name it, distraught about those. As much as we need to be uneasy about the tooth warning that 397,122 children are without us will wait three years before they can. So if you want to call, there's their website, there's their number, and pray. Buckner, another local one. Not everybody's going to feel called towards adoption, or towards foster care. There are other organizations that I can introduce you to. We've got a church member here uh, who, who is there in numerous ways to demonstrate that our convictions have actually seen all children that are desperate for some sort of family. Hundreds of thousands of children, not just in our country, but around the world 
that need mourning. That's, that's the message that we're really going to dive into with chapter 2. Right? It's the heart of the gospel to receive God's mercy and his grace in our time of need. And that's what we see. And we'll continue to move through this chapter. Now, I want to give a special word of thanks and gratitude. You guys were here. You were blessed by his faithful teaching of the text, which he's demonstrated for you. I want you to know that that's something that I really value and want to continue to foster in our and so as I continue to move into this tenure as pastor here, we're going to give, we're not going to be careless with who we entrust with that sort of stuff, but, but I want you to know that I think we saw when Brian introduced chapter two last week is that chapter two is very different than what form of what's been happening to Jonah. And then all of a sudden chapter two gives us this psalm, it gives us this prayer, feel to it. And so I want to revisit part of the distinctive qualities and why this prayer is so important. Prayer gives us some really important insights to Jonah himself, right? The, the first heart. Right? In chapter 1, he is a rebellious, dis- disobedient punk. So without chapter 2, we don't understand how he gets from point A to point B. This is an insight to him responding to the mercy that has been given to him. Right? And that's the other that is so prevalent in the book of Jonah. Over and over and over again, we see the power of God's mercy. Now, a couple of things about it right, is that it's a, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. It's offered from the belly of the fish. Right? If you read that in verse 1. And that, to me, is really significant. In fact, I want to I ask you a question before we go to our verses today. If you were Jonah, right, if you were in Jonah's situation here, could you be able to, to truly pray a prayer of thanksgiving from inside the belly of a fish? I mean, think about that for a moment. I mean, Jonah gets thrown overboard in the midst of this storm, in the midst of these waves and all these different things, and I'm sure in his final prayer, in his desperate plea, he has all these other ideas of how God could save him. Right, God, send a boat, right? Send a life preserver, whatever. Like, give me gills so I can breathe underwater. Like, there's got to be a lot of different things that he thought of. And I'm sure, now we don't know for certain, but I'm willing to bet Jonah didn't say, Lord, send a fish to swallow me, right? And so two weeks ago, we talked about that, God's unexpected mercy. And there's something really important for us to consider in that this morning, Right? It's this idea that a lot of times we ask for help, but we also ask for how we want it to be delivered, <laughs> don't we? We find ourselves in these desperate situations or circumstances, and yes, we cry for help, and then we say, but God, I really want it to look this way. And when we offer those specifics, a lot of times we miss the ability to actually identify God's rescue and then for sure be able to be grateful for it. Right? And so, so it's that old joke. Right, it's like the guy that's on his roof in the flood and prays for God to save him, and then there's a guy that comes by in a boat. It's like, no, God's going to save me. And then a guy comes by in a helicopter. No, God's going to save me. And then he dies in the flood, and he goes to the guy. He's like, why didn't you save me? He's like, well, I sent you a boat, sent you a helicopter, right? And you didn't, you didn't see it. It's the same thing that all of us embrace, or we often fall victim to, isn't it? Right? God, I really need help with my marriage, but it needs to look this way. God, I need help at work. And I really want it to be this way. God, I'm battling this disease, this sickness, and it needs to be cured this way. And when we put those qualifications, a lot of times we miss how God's plan for rescue needs to unfold. And, and not only that, what we also see in, in this particular piece is that if you really put yourself in Jonah's situation, if you're inside the belly of a fish, it's dark, it's uncomfortable, it's scary. How many times do we find ourselves in situations 
that are uncomfortable, that are scary, right, that have us uneasy. And in the midst of all that, Jonah was still able to identify God's will and give him praise, give him thanks. See, we need to see that the true prayer of a saint is one that can get down on their knees and regardless of situation and circumstance, have the maturity to see how God is choosing to rescue them, even if it's painful, and then giving praise for it. (laughs) That's who our God is. That's what we need to see over and over again. So let's take a look at chapter 2, picking back up in this prayer. Now, we're going to focus on verses 3 and 4, but I'm going to start reading in verse 2 at the beginning of this prayer. Here's what Jonah says. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Here's my verses. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. All right, I love this passage, and and a couple things that I want to highlight in those those two verses, verses three and four. The first thing about verse three is, is it really continues this theme that really weaves itself through the entire prayer, which is this theme of the certainty of death, right? We, we talked about that a lot last week. Brian was able to highlight that with verse two, right? That, that Jonah has seen that he deserves and is facing certain death. And so that's reiterated here. When you see these phrases like, you've hurled me into the depths, that word depths is often kind of a, a, a representation or a symbol of the realm of the dead. You see uh, additional descriptions like waves and breakers that are often forces of destruction, even waves and breakers of death that are swept and swirled around him. We see over and over again in verse 3 the certainty of death. Now we're going to talk more about that theme next week, okay? And so hold on to that idea, but it was present in verse 2, it's present in verse 3, it's going to be present in our verses next week. So So that's a constant theme that we see in this prayer. What I really want us to spend some time uh, digging into for just a moment is verse four, right? Verse four, as Jonah faces that certainty of death, he says, you have banished me from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. And so what we have in verse four is a prayer from Jonah that, that serves as somewhat of a confession, right? He recognizes the certainty of death and he confesses, all right, I've been banished from your sight, Now, that word banish really captures this idea of separation, and we've seen it before in the scriptures. We see it in in Genesis with Adam and Eve being banished from the Garden of Eden. We see it with Cain after he kills Abel and God banishing Cain from his his presence, right? So what we begin to see with Jonah's story and his word here, his prayer here, and this word of banishment is that this is the common consequence of sin, separation from God, right? That we are distant from him. This is the problem of humanity, right? This is the consequence of all sin and brokenness, to be banished from his sight. Now, a lot of times what we see with this kind of verse is maybe that sense that the psalmist declares in some of those prayers, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? Right, that sense that that I've escaped God's notice. He has forgotten me. He doesn't see me any longer. And there's probably an element of that, I think, in Jonah's experience here, but I would probably offer maybe a different perspective in the sense that what I think Jonah's really recognizing here is the weight of his own sin and his own rebellion. See, Jonah realizes it's his fault, right? This is the shame factor. 
I am facing this death. I'm facing this situation because of my own disobedience. And I've had enough experiences personally and conversations with others that I'm willing to bet there are several of you in here that are either in this current situation or you've been there before where you feel the weight of that sin, that deed, that mistake that nobody else knows about. That secret that you've kept deep within or those moments where you feel like you've made such an egregious error in your life that there's no way God can forgive you. And when we find ourselves in those situations, a lot of times when we think that we have escaped God's sight, escaped his notice, then we just give up and continue to live that life of destruction. And I've had people look me in the eye before confessing all the things that they've done and they say, are you sure he can really forgive me? And that, to me, is part of what Jonah is wrestling with. He realizes the weight of his sin. And just that overwhelming question, can he truly be merciful even to me? It's that moment that you feel as if you've escaped the reach of God's mercy. And what we need to remind ourselves of and what we see in this prayer is that we never get beyond the reach of mercy. Though our sins are many, his mercy is more. What we need to remember is that our God is a God that, that, rest, uh, that redeems and rescues a rebellious prophet. He's the one that calls murderers and adulterers and uses them for his kingdom. We are never beyond his mercy. And yet that's the opening confession of this prayer. I've been banished from your sight. And with that confession, Jonah gives us a clue as to how we can rediscover the sufficiency of God's mercy. Because what does he do in that situation? He says, I will look again to his holy temple. Now that phrase, look again, means that he is going to consider, he is going to focus his attention on God's holy temple. And and when I read that, to me, again, proved to be a way for us to ask an important question this morning. Right? On one level, it's when you're in those moments of distress, when you're in that moment of conviction, or you're in that moment of of feeling so much sin in your life, where do, you, where do you look? But I think we can expand that, and it doesn't just have to be in those moments of distress. I'd say for any of you, wherever you are in life, my question for you this morning is, where's your focus? What are you looking to? Where are, you, where are your eyes fixed? See, I think part of the problem, going back to the, the, the talk we had at the beginning of this message, is that a lot of times we find ourselves just fixed on the wrong thing. And we get frustrated with this brokenness. We get frustrated with this sin. And so we turn to politics. And that's not going to solve anything. It's going to fail us every single time. Or we turn to money. And some of us are in here and things are going good. And and that's where our attention is and our focus is. If we can just get a little bit more money to achieve these dreams or to achieve this comfort or to achieve anything that we feel like will, will give us that security and that protection, that's where my attention is. Or we focus on comfort, knowing that maybe we won't be affluent, but if we can just kind of curate this nice little American dream, white picket fence, 2.5 children with a dog sort of life, then that's all we really need. So I can schedule my faith, but my eyes are really focused on comfort. So where are you looking? And where are your eyes fixed? What we need to see is through the lesson of Jonah that our eyes should be fixed on his holy temple. Now, what I want us to do as we begin to wrap up is what does that mean for Jonah, but then what does that mean for us today? 
All right, when you begin to discuss the temple, what we need to, to see is that this was always part of God's plan, right? He calls Abraham, he begins to set apart for himself his own people, and then after he brings them up out of Egypt with Moses, he has a tabernacle, right? And this tabernacle becomes a place for God's presence to be. And, and then as this kingdom gets established, he then gives the instructions to Solomon to actually build a temple. And so that temple becomes the place where God's people can come and be in God's presence, right? They can see that he is with them. It's that promise that God is with his people. But in addition to that, this idea of a temple doesn't just remind us of God's presence being near, but it reminds us of who God is, correct? Now, this is true in our own lives, right? Like, if you think about your home, it communicates a message about who lives there. I'll never forget the first time I had a chance to really think about my own home and, and living on my own for the first time. It kind of came right after college. I had been in, in college for four years, and three of those four years, I was in a fraternity house and lived in a fraternity house, all right? And, and the fraternity homes in, in OU can hold about 60 to 70 college guys. So just take that in for a moment, all right? Imagine living with 60 to 70 19 to 22-year-old guys, okay? It's too many stories to go into today. And, and part of the frustration of living in that context was that we had community bathrooms. And so I had this little plastic crate that had my toothpaste, my toothbrush, my shaving cream, my razor, my deodorant, my soap, shampoo, all this different stuff. Every single morning, right, I had to take this thing out of my closet, walk down there, take it down there, brush my teeth. Like it was such a ritual and it was so annoying. So I graduate, right, and, and I'm getting to go into my own apartment. Now, Jennifer and I are engaged. We're gonna be married about two and a half months later. And so I was gonna get to live in it by myself for about two and a half months. She was still living with her parents. But it was kind of those things, well, it's gonna be our apartment. So as I moved in, she was obviously having some influence on how things would be set up. Well, I didn't really care about much of that. I was just excited about having my own bathroom. And so I take this little, you know, rusted, you know, toothpaste, crusted plastic crate, and I go into the bathroom, and I'm like giddy, and I like take stuff, I'm like, you know, toothpaste, toothbrush, deodorant. I'm just having, I get it all spread out on the counter. I'm excited about it. And then I leave, you know, I go about my day. I go back later that day. All my stuff is gone. And the only thing, I don't see my toothpaste. I don't see my toothbrush. I see, my, I see a little flower just sitting right over there next to the sink. And I'm like, where's my stuff? And I start looking around and I'm going all around the bathroom and I look underneath the cabinet. It's all back in that plastic crate that I'd had in college. I was like, this is not how I envisioned it, right? And so all that to say, it was a kind of a wake-up call to me that like how you live is going to reflect who's there, right? And so you fast forward almost 14 years, you come to our house, let you know, it's not going to feel like you're walking into a museum, okay? It's going to look like it's lived in, right? There, you feel free to spill in the Smith house, okay? We got stains all over the place because we have children, we have animals, and we've discovered they kind of live the same way, right? So the point is, where you live reveals who lives there. So when we look at the temple, it's not just this promise that God is present. What is the primary message of the temple? God is holy. Over and over again, every step, every ritual, every detail reveals the holiness of God. What does that mean? Well, when we think about holiness, yes, on one level, it's this moral purity, right, that God is perfectly pure and we are perfectly corrupt and there is a difference but more than that holiness reminds us that the sacred has come to redeem the common and the profane right it's this this hope of 
redemption. It's this reminder that you and I are destined to reflect his image. And so we see in the scriptures this call to be holy because God is holy. And that is more than just an aspiration to moral purity, but to live lives that show we are not destined for corruption, but we are destined for that which is sacred, that good triumphs over evil. This is the hope of God's holiness. It is the the pathway that leads us to a greater understanding of his mercy and his grace. And so Jonah is looking and focused on this promise that God is present and he is holy. And that holiness leads to mercy. It leads to rescue that which is corrupt even in our deepest rebellion. It's a beautiful way to focus our eyes in those types of circumstances. So what does that mean for you and me today? A couple of just quick applications. Well, clearly the the temple is foreshadowing Jesus, right? That Jesus becomes the full incarnation of God's holiness, right? He is the full representation of his being. It's to him that we look. He is Emmanuel, God with us. With Jesus, we see the full message of both God's presence and his holiness. So our response in today's situation is that when we go through these times, our eyes, our focus is on Jesus. But what does that mean besides just church language? Look to Jesus. Well, a couple of things that I would say as it pertains to this passage. The first is we need to know what it means to be holy, right? That, that's the first part. When we begin to look to these other things, politics, ourselves, other, whatever it is, we're getting corrupted advice. So we look to the scriptures, Right? We need to first know what holiness looks like. We look to the scriptures to understand how we respond in our families, how we respond in political situations, how we respond in crisis. We need to know what holiness is first, so we turn to the scriptures first and foremost. And then we need to strive for holiness. Right? We need to actually strive to, to make ourselves reflect the God that we serve. Right? So more than people need to see the, the desires of the flesh, they need to see the fruits of the Spirit. Right? When we, they look at us, they need to see people striving to be those that can demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Right? That's what we need to do is we need to strive for that sort of life. And then third, we need to demonstrate holiness by how we act. Right? We need to live lives that constantly reveal that the sacred has overcome that which is common. We need to tell people that they too need to look to Jesus, that they were destined for sacred beautiful, holy lives, not lives of this world and corruption. So we demonstrate it. We know it. We strive for it. That's what it means for us to pursue this holiness. Now, here's what I want us to do as we close. Every, every week, we give prayerful consideration to how we need to respond to God's word. And, and as we were praying through this and preparing the sermon, we felt what a, what a more appropriate way to respond to God's mercy in his grace, and his holiness, but by sharing in the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to kind of transition to that time. I want to share a couple passages, just paraphrased from Hebrews, that I think will help get our hearts ready. And as I'm sharing some of this stuff, I want you to examine your hearts. I want you to examine your souls and your minds, right? Because there are two main sacraments that have been given to the church to keep our eyes focused on this gospel and to be reminded of his holiness, right? It's the sacrament of baptism where we're united with Christ in his death, raised to walk in new life, and it's the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We have a chance to once again be reminded of the cross and the resurrection. And so as we enter into this time, 
let me remind you what the author of Hebrews shares with us, right? That, that Jesus, through his suffering, he is the one who makes others holy. So the one who makes others holy and the ones who are made holy are brought into the same family, Hebrews 2. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. It's the restoration that we are no longer separated. We are no longer banished from his sight. We are brought into his family through his holiness. And what we see later in Hebrews 9 is that Jesus, what does he do? Well, he enters into this heavenly sanctuary, not the earthly one that is a copy of the one that is in heaven. He enters into the true holy of holies, not by the blood of lambs and rams and bulls, but by his own blood to secure for you and me an eternal redemption. And so what we see now is that when Jesus returns, he is not coming back to bear the sins of many, but to bring salvation to all those who wait for him, which complements what the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that when we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Our eyes are fixated on him. And we long for the fulfillment of this salvation. What we see when we approach this table is something very similar to Jonah. That though we stand guilty, though we still stand condemned, we have been brought near. We have a great high priest that understands our every weakness, our every failure. And he gives us mercy and grace in our time of need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is no way in which we can even begin to capture the fulfillment of your mercy. And so we join with Jonah with, with a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. And we just say thank you, God, for what you have done and what you are doing. As we prepare for this, this supper, this time in which we can convene together over this great sacrament, we pray that you would help us to once again see the fulfillment of your grace. Father, that if there's anyone in here today that feels as if they have escaped your sight and escaped your notice, that you would remind them that your mercy is more. So Father, we, we thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the hope of an empty tomb. That though we face a certainty of death, we can see that you have brought us into your family. And so this time we give to you. That mercy would change us, transform us. We can know your holiness, we can strive for it, and we can demonstrate it to others. Spirit, come and lead us in this time. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen, amen.